Good morning, everyone. There's certain passages in the Bible that, and it's probably true for all of us, that just get your attention. Just sort of make you think a little more than perhaps others. For me, there are uh, the ones that are just so profound to me that give me cause to pause are those which talk about uh, the things that God looks for, the things that he seeks, the things that attract his attention. Uh, for example, Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Or Isaiah 66.2, where God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble of heart and trembles at my word. And passages like these are so profound to me because they indicate that God is actually actively searching. He's actively seeking, looking across the earth, and there is something we can do to get his attention. Something that will cause his gaze to be centered upon us. And that, to me, that's, that's amazing. That's profound. And among these passages, the one that really sticks out in my mind is John 4, 23, where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and he says to her, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks, there it is again, to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And, you know, it's amazing what Jesus is saying here, that God is actively seeking looking for, examining, searching for true worshipers. And it's a worship that he rightly deserves, right? The worship that God wants, Jesus describes as worshiping in spirit and in truth. That is a a genuine worship, a worship that is based on truth, a worship from the heart, from a worshiper who is humble, a worshiper who trembles at his word. But we have to ask ourselves the question, well, just what is worship? What is meant by that? We often describe it as uh, giving songs of praise. That's usually determined or described as the time of worship, but we know that's just a small part, right? Worship encompasses the whole of our being, all that we think, all that we desire, all that we say, all that we do. Paul describes it in Romans 12.1 when he says in response to our salvation, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In fact, there's the word. This worship is a presenting of ourselves to God as a holy, that means set apart for God, and living, that means an ongoing sacrifice to Him. This is what Paul says is our spiritual service of worship. And so that means that worship really is a whole person response in every aspect of life, a response that is directed solely towards the honor and glory of God. And thus, above all, above anything else, our worship then must be authentic. It must be genuine. It must be true. Consider this. Every part of our life touches every other part of our life. We try to compartmentalize it. We try to isolate it. But at the end of the day, who we are is everything that we think, say, and do and desire. Every part of our life touches every other part. And so what we do on Sunday or in prayer time or in times in the Word or when we gather together, that is directly linked to everything else we do throughout the week. And so this morning, I want to address this question. Are you a true worshiper? Is your worship authentic? In the mid-1840s, Frederick Douglass, who was a former slave and a gifted writer and speaker, he wrote in his autobiography of the horrors of slavery, the slavery that he experienced personally. In one portion of the book, he describes his impression of, quote-unquote, Christianity in the South. Listen to what he says. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday. 
and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of the week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of the God who made me. Sobering words. And if anything, Douglas describes here in very graphic terms the height of hypocritical worship. Those who would attend church on Sunday while committing horrible atrocities throughout the rest of the week. Again, this is without a doubt the height of hypocritical worship. A worship that feigns love for God at one particular time and then at other times expresses a love for self and hatred of others. And before we dismiss Douglas's experience as a thing of the past, we need to remind ourselves that, remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that anger against another is to God as the sin of murder? And then he said, if you look at a woman or a man and lust after him or her, that that is as the sin of adultery? What is Jesus doing there? He's telling us the seed of the atrocities which occurred in the time of slavery and all throughout human history. Those seeds exist within our own hearts. And that to God, the things that we desire, even in his eyes, can be the same as having done them. Jesus' words, again, remind us the seeds of all evil reside in our own hearts. Douglas rightly concludes that the authenticity of one's worship is directly linked to who a person is, not just on Sunday, but every day. The issue of authentic worship is one that confronted the people of Israel. The prophet Isaiah, in fact, in the very first chapter, in Isaiah chapter 1, if you could turn there, please. Here, Isaiah confronts the very same issue of hypocritical worship. Because the people in Isaiah's day were much like those in the mid-1800s in our country, acting one way during their gathering together, during their times of offering sacrifice, but quite another during the rest of the week. And from Isaiah's message, a message directed to those hypocritical worshipers, we will learn three steps toward authentic worship. Three steps toward a life of authentic worship, so that we would be those that God seeks and delights in, as Jesus talked about in John 4. Again, now Isaiah begins his book confronting the type of worship that was being offered by the people of Israel. What's interesting here is that it wasn't that they were neglecting coming to the Lord. In fact, they were very faithful in bringing their sacrifices as prescribed in the law. They were very consistent in celebrating the feast that God had commanded them to celebrate. They were constantly offering prayer. They were frequently coming to the temple to worship. And so the problem wasn't their presence there in terms of coming. But the problem was their worship wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. They were just going through the motions, but not the reality of true worship. And so again, from Isaiah's message here in verses 10 to 18 of chapter 1, we will see three steps towards a life of authentic worship. First step is this, seen in verses 10 to 15, that is to recognize God's attitude towards hypocritical worship. The path to authentic worship begins by understanding, truly understanding God's attitude towards hypocritical worship. Look with me at Isaiah 1 verse 10. Here we're jumping in sort of in the middle of Isaiah's sermon. He had already declared uh, the sins of Israel, the idolatry, the immorality, the wickedness, the oppression, and the consequences God was bringing. And now here, he says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And he's speaking to Israel here. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. 
I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wow. God's pretty clear here about how he feels. Notice he refers here to Israel, people of Israel, as Sodom and Gomorrah. We know who they were, right? These were cities that were completely annihilated by God because of their wickedness. And here he refers to his own people that way. This shows us God's attitude to what they were calling worship. A worship we see described here in greater detail in the verses that follow verse 10. God begins his indictment in verse 11 with the rhetorical question. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? And then he describes the various different animal sacrifices that were offered. Again, the issue here wasn't they were bringing the wrong offerings. The issue here wasn't that they were neglecting to bring offerings to the Lord. Indeed, God says they were bringing multiplied sacrifices. That means they they were bringing an abundance. And he says here, I have had enough of them. And literally in the Hebrew, it's this idea, I'm stuffed, I'm full, I'm satiated. Kind of brought to my mind when I was first studying this. Of the, uh, I remember Violet in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right, you remember her? And then she ends up being bloated and it's being stomach full. They got to roll her away to keep her from exploding. I mean, it's, it's almost, without the humorous part, that's almost what God's saying here. I'm, I'm just, I'm filled up. There can't, you can't put another drop inside, so to speak. Obviously a metaphor. He doesn't have a stomach. But he's speaking here of, I'm just full. Stop. Enough. Notice in verse 12, it's interesting how he describes their coming before him. Instead of being a welcome presence in the temple, he describes them as a trampling of his house. As they're walking in their footsteps and then the hooves of the animals that are coming into him, because of their condition, he was saying, that's like you're trampling, you're not even welcome here. You're, you're trampling, you're dirtying my, my home. That's the attitude being conveyed. And not only was he sickened by the animal sacrifices, he abhorred their grain offerings and their festivals. Look again at verse 13. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. And here again, it wasn't that the people were, were bringing things that God didn't want. These were things that he was prescribed them to bring. And these new moons and Sabbaths and these festivals were, were things that he called them to celebrate. It wasn't that they were doing something different. Again, it was the manner. And so God says, you know, even all these activities I called you to do, they're worthless to me. Stop it. He tells them even the incense that they were called to burn before him, they had, it had become a foul stench in his nostrils. God speaks of their regular times of gathering together. Again, feasts and Passover, Sabbath. These are things God had instituted himself. They had become loathsome to him. And rather than being feasts which honored him, God describes them here in the Hebrew literally as iniquitous assemblies. Sin fests in his eyes. This is... Startling language. And then notice verse 14. If it could not get any more intense, it does. Look at what he says there. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. (laughs) Think about that language. God speaking. He's not burdened by anything. And obviously this is a poetic expression here. But he's burdened. He's weary of them. Again, God isn't just expressing disapprovals of their gatherings together. He says here, my soul hates them. (laughs) Down to the depths of my being, I detest and loathe and despise these things, he's saying. Now let's stop here and reflect for a moment. This is a stunning, and not in a good way, a stunning declaration by God. He looks at these religious activities and says, I hate them. What could be more condemning? But God's disgust with their hypocritical worship didn't start, stop there. Not only was he sickened by their animal sacrifices, not only did he abhor their grain offerings, not only was he uh, loathing the things that they were doing, perhaps the most devastating declaration that he makes in this whole statement is that he says at the end there, he was unmoved by their prayer. 
Notice verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. What could be more discouraging than that? When you pray, he says, I'm going to look the other way. Despite the fact here, it says they were multiplying prayers. Again, it wasn't an issue of them not praying. God's consistent response to those multiplied prayers is, I'm not listening. The severity of these words in verse 15 cannot be overstated. God's rejection was personal. Now, just what was it that brought such a visceral reaction by God? What was it that stirred his heart to such strong and intense language? Was it a repudiation of the sacrificial system? Is God abolishing the means by which he had called Israel to worship him? No, not at all. In fact, we're given the reason at the very end of verse 15. Look there at that last phrase. It says, your hands are covered with blood. That short phrase expresses why God said everything that he did before that. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, we need to understand the picture here. When people in Israel would come to bring sacrifices, normally they would gather there was an inner court and an outer court. The inner court is where the, the, uh, the uh, holy place would be where the Holy of Holies and then the, the room in front of that that was covered by a tent in the days of Moses and then Solomon's temple, it became a, a hard brick-and-mortar structure. And then there was an altar. There was a, a laver and then an altar outside in front of that holy place. And that inner court was the court where the priests would be in order to help the worshiper in offering the sacrifice. And so you would go to uh, the place, you would go to the temple, you would offer your sacrifice there. And what would happen is the head of the family normally would come in from the outer court to the inner court with the sacrifice. And then the worshiper, the sacrificer, was the one responsible to slit the throat of the animal. That wasn't what the priest did. If you were to come bring a sacrifice, that is what you would do sort of brings a whole new light to the severity of our own sin, right? If you had to kill an animal because of something you did. Well, when slitting the throat, I don't know if you've experienced that. I did growing up and my grandfather raising cattle. Um, if I could just try, I'll try not to be too graphic, but there's blood everywhere. Right? You slit the, the arteries in the neck and it's just pouring out. So the worshiper, his hands would be covered with the blood of the sacrifice. And typically what they would do is after the priest would help them to lift the sacrifice onto the altar and to burn the appropriate parts, the worshiper would lift his hands to heaven in sort of an entreating to God to accept that sacrifice. Now as he's lifting those hands, what would be dripping from them? The blood of the animal, right? He had just slit the throat, it was all over his hands. So as he lifted them, that blood would be dripping. So God says here, his problem with the worshipers is your hands are dripping. They are full of blood. Your hands are covered with blood. Now, wait a minute, God. Of course they'd be covered with blood. I just slit the throat of this animal. Are you saying I need to wash my hands off before? Is that what this is all about? Is that why you're so upset? No, that's not it at all. God was using that as a picture. The blood on the worshiper's hands was not the animal's blood that he's talking about. It was human blood. We'd know that and we'd see that more clearly. If in the Hebrew, the word used there is literally bloods and it often referred to bloodshed. Violence. Murder. Committed against others. And so here, God is flipping the picture. While they were sacrificing this animal and the blood of the animals dripping from their hands, God says, no, no, you have human blood on your hands. That is why I'm so sick of this worship that you're offering. You're coming to me, oppressing, mistreating, committing violence against your neighbor, and then come to me with your sacrifices as if nothing happened and you're just offering this wonderful worship to God. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Your hands are covered with blood. He mentions throughout the rest of, Isaiah does, throughout the rest of his book, several ways they were doing that. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, they were oppressing the widow and the orphan. In chapter 5, verse 7, they were carrying out injustice and bloodshed. In chapter 20, uh, 5, verse 23, they tolerated bribery and injustice. Chapter 10, verse 1, they deprived the needy 
rob the poor. Over and over throughout this book, Isaiah describes the things they were doing against others. He summarizes it in Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Again, that picture there. Their hands were defiled with blood or bloodshed. Again, God's disgust with them was that while they were feigning a keeping of the first commandment to love God with all their heart, at the same time they were butchering the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do one without the other. They cannot be separated in God's eyes. In fact, didn't John, the Apostle John, describe this in 1 John chapter 4 when he said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John, why don't you say what you're really thinking? (laughs) For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And you know, if these verses in Isaiah tell us anything... They tell us anything is that God is not interested in rote external expressions of religion. That he's not interested in any worship that is being offered while hating one's brother or oppressing the poor or not caring for the needy or tolerating or encouraging injustice or committing immorality or sinning against a spouse, a child, a neighbor consistently. Again, what these people were doing during the week rendered their worship as false as hypocritical, as disingenuous, was not authentic. All the externals were there, and they were following the prescription God had given them. But God did not have their hearts. Isaiah said later in chapter 29, verse 13, something Jesus quoted in his ministry. The people, he said, honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And you know Brothers and sisters, it's been God's desire all through history, even in Old Testament times, to have those whose hearts were fully His, whose hearts longed to worship and serve and fear and have a relationship with Him. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord God your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. That's relationship language. To walk in all His ways and love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. Or again in Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. It says I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But the people here fail to realize this. That worship is more than an event. It's a way of life. God wants righteousness. Not quote unquote religion. He wants what's real. Not ritual. God wants faithfulness, not fakeness. He wants integrity, not insincerity. He wants honesty, not hypocrisy. And if God's extreme reaction here against the people of Israel should show us anything, it should show us God's attitude towards hypocritical worship, doesn't it? Again, such strong language. Anyone who would offer service or sacrifice or worship to God while harboring a sinful lifestyle only brings loathing and disgust and a deaf ear. One preacher said, I believe God would rather have five minutes of true worship than five hours of phony religion. I would say even five seconds of true worship. And I'm persuaded there are many... Many in this land, in churches all across America, perhaps even some here in this room, who are just going through the motions, just like those 7th century Israelites. They do what they think God expects of them, coming to church, singing with the congregation, perhaps reading a Bible every day, going to Bible studies, even attending prayer meetings, small groups, things like that. But listen... Listen, please, if, if our life outside of those worship times is full of sin, if you are not showing love consistently to others, if you're taking advantage of people, if your heart is empty with a true love for God, if God is absent from your day-to-day life, then your worship is worthless. It's meaningless. 
It's hypocritical. And we've seen here what God thinks of hypocritical worship. It's like the prideful Sunday school teacher one morning who was trying to impress upon his class the importance of living the Christian life. And so he asked his students, why do you think people call me a Christian? After a moment's pause, one of the kids said, maybe it's because they don't know you. (laughs) Ouch. You know, if coming here Sunday mornings is just a ritual for you, let me tell you these words. And as an understanding way as I can, this passage is aimed at you. And it's not a place you want to be. You need to recognize God's attitude towards that form of worship. And though this text, again, it was addressed primarily to non-believing Israelites, believers also need to take its principles very seriously. We need to be very careful about offering hypocritical worship to God. Because lest we think, oh, that's an Old Testament thing. You know, that's when they would do sacrifices and stuff like that. Lest we get trapped in that sort of thinking. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5. In fact, they came right after. He talked about, if you're angry in your heart, it says the sin of murder. Right after that, he said this. And you'll recognize these words. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. That's Jesus speaking. We can't miss what he's saying. How we treat others is directly connected to what we do here. It's directly connected. So much so, God's saying, don't even enter the doors until you deal with that situation. If you're in an ongoing sin or conflict, then deal with that first. You can't love your brother or hate your brother whom you've not seen and say you love me. Hate your brother whom you have seen and say you love me whom you've not seen. This is exactly what Jesus is saying there in a very practical way. You know, as our kids were growing up, uh, there were several times, you know, as we're getting ready for church or some particular event happening uh, here, and one child would uh, be sinning against another. And there were often times that rather than just head off to church and deal with it later, we stopped everything and dealt with it then. Because I didn't want... My wife and I didn't want our kids coming to church thinking that it was okay to do or say that thing you did against your brother and sister and then come here and sing to God. And it's not just our kids that need to... How many times have we been in loud or heated arguments on our way here? Or maybe during the week, you've had a week full of conflict with a spouse, with a child, with a parent, with a neighbor, co-worker, and then you come here as if God didn't see all of that during the week. We're all guilty of this. I am too. We have an ongoing issue with someone else, or know, as Jesus said, that there's an ongoing issue that they have with us. We need to deal with it. We need to be very careful. We need to keep our slate clean. And this isn't just in how we treat others. There's... If there's any ongoing sin in our life, issues of immorality or anger problems, so to speak, or struggling with particular substance or food or gossip or, you know, the list goes on. If that's ongoing and you're not dealing with it, it falls into the same category. Remember, worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. So again, the first step here to authentic worship is to recognize God's attitude towards hypocritical worship. The second step is to repent from that hypocritical worship. We see that here in verses 16 and 17. Take a look there. Verse 16, back in Isaiah 1. In response to their hypocrisy, Isaiah says this. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now here we see, thankfully, right? Thankfully the sermon doesn't end at verse 15. But God said, look, there's a way out. There's a way out. As strongly as he felt against what they were doing, he says, look, there's a way to make things right. 
And here he gives it in the form of nine commands and then a promise. Nine commands and then a promise. The first set of four commands in verse 16 is describing a, a fleeing from that evil behavior. The sinful behavior that he was condemning just a moment before. And then the next five verses in verse four, nine, next five commands in verse 17 call for the pursuit of righteous behavior. So what he's saying here is anyone who's guilty of this hypocritical worship, they were to cleanse themselves from their rebellious ways. Now, he's not saying that that we can, in our own, achieve righteous standing before God. But what he's saying here is simply this. Stop! Stop! Or in our terminology, repent! Stop going down that road. Cease to do evil. And then he says, not only are you to stop doing what you're doing that is wrong, you need to pursue what is right. He says it explicitly. Learn to do good. And I like that phraseology. Learn to do good. Make it a habit. Of being good. A change in lifestyle is being commanded here. They weren't simply to perform the occasional deed, but to behave or act rightly as a way of life. And God then tells them specifically how in verse 17. Notice he gives very specific application in this message. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These all describe the behavior of one who's truly repentant. And these last two commands strike at the heart of one who would offer true worship. For true worship means this, simply to care about what God cares about. That's what it looks like. Love for people, especially those in great need. That's the true test of one's relationship with God. In fact, uh, this should remind us of a passage in the New Testament, James 1. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion, that is authentic worship. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That sounds a lot like our brother Isaiah. We would do well to evaluate the true level of our own true worship by how well we show love for those who can't repay. In fact, that's really the most telling sign of any society or any person or any church is how they treat those from whom they will not receive some benefit or compensation back from them. So let's take stock of our lives right now. Ask yourself, are are you guilty of hypocritical worship? Is your relationship with God marked by an outward duty and not an inward holiness? And again, one of the most practical ways we can see that is how we treat others, especially those we are closest to. Dear friends, don't let this moment pass without asking yourself that question. Am I a true worshiper? It reminds me of the words of Thomas Watson. What good will it do a man when he is in hell that others think he has gone to heaven? We need to stop external religion and come before God broken. That's what David recognized in Psalm 51 when he, when he said, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it, he says to the Lord. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's that attitude of repentance. He's not saying he doesn't care at all about sacrifices, but the manner in which they're offered, that's the key. That's the key. But this is not the end of the story. The answer is not simply in Isaiah's message, stop stop doing evil deeds, pursue right ones, and then everything's okay. That doesn't repair the damage that had been done by those sinful deeds, nor does it pay for the sins that had been committed. Remember Isaiah 59, verse 2? He said, our iniquities have created a separation between us and God. So even in that turning from sin, we still need to recognize there's a breach in the relationship. That sin must be dealt with, the sin that had been committed. A repentant heart is necessary, but it's not sufficient in order to be a true worshiper. Ultimately, the only way that sin can be removed from our bloody hands is for God himself to wash it off. And that's exactly what we see in verse 18. Look there with me. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That first statement there, come now and let us reason together, that's courtroom language. The idea here is let's let us debate our case in court. Let us settle our differences. That was sort of the terminology that would often be used in those days in that regard. And just what is the settlement that God is proposing here? It's quite an amazing deal, actually. Notice he said, Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now, some take this, especially the way it's translated here, as a promise that God is saying he will uh, save, a future promise that he will save these people. But the idea, idea conveyed in the original Hebrew is this is a, instead of will be, it should be translated can become or may be. Your sins can become white as snow. The language here is conditional. Forgiveness is never extended without true repentance, right? It's a resolve to trust in God. Just like Peter said in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and return that your sin, that your sins may be wiped away. And so here God is offering the forgiveness. He said, your sins can be washed away. You can be forgiven. But it's going to be based on whether or not they were repentant. Like the people in Jonah's day, the Ninevites, right? God relented from the judgment he was bringing because of their repentance and their trust in him. And again, this is... This is an amazing statement. Again, think about what all that has just been said about God's attitude toward their sacrifices and his intense, heated disgust with their hypocritical worship. And yet at the same time, he is ready and willing and desiring to forgive. <laughs> Friends, God's mercy is incredible. Any who have sinned against the holy God any who have participated in hypocritical worship, any who have incurred, and this is all of us, God's anger and judgment for sin committed against them, we can find mercy and forgiveness. In fact, Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah chapter 55 when he said, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God he will abundantly pardon Now, the question is, how is this forgiveness offered from a just God? How is it that God can say, you repent, turn from your wicked ways, put your trust in me, seek what is right, and I will forgive. I will wash those sins away. Well, how could God do that if he's just? Is it simply just a few words we say and then God says, okay, we're fine? I think we know the answer to that. The answer comes later in Isaiah chapter 53. That God would send someone to take those sins upon himself. Let me just read a few statements from Isaiah 53 where Isaiah says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He poured himself out to death. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He's talking, of course, about the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be the means in which God can forgive. Isaiah foretells here of how Jesus would be tortured and killed to deliver hypocritical worshipers like you and me. Through Him, our sins can be forgiven. Through Him, we can be made right before God. Through His crimson blood that was flowing down the cross... Our crimson sin can be made white as snow, washed away. And this is the message that must be declared to the world, a world that is caught up in false and external religion. This is a message that we need to proclaim to many who think that the evil and sin in their life and wickedness, that that all can be taken care of just by themselves, by their own human effort. It must be declared to the world A world that is looking for answers in anything but Jesus Christ. And going back to Isaiah 1, his message and the theme of it also needs to be declared to us. Even though it was 2,700 years ago to a very different people in a very different time in a different situation, it still applies to us today. No matter how long 
we've been coming to church, no matter how long we've called ourselves a Christian, no matter how many sermons we have heard, no matter how much of the Bible we have read, no matter how many Bible studies we've been a part of, no matter how many ministries we've served in, we too are in danger of becoming cold. We too are in danger of acting one way inside this building and another way outside. Aren't we? You with me here? Again, does your heart and life during a week match what everyone else sees here on Sunday? What would those closest to you say? So we've seen so far the first two steps towards authentic worship. The first is to recognize God's attitude towards hypocritical worship. The second is to repent from that hypocritical worship. And the third one, and I'm going to move to a more positive tone here, so... And that is to pursue a life of authentic worship. Let's go back to a passage I mentioned at the beginning this morning. John chapter 4, verse 23. If you could turn there for a moment. John 4, verse 23. Again, this is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. And after exposing the sins that existed in her life and telling her of the fact that he, he is the coming one, He says these words, they're embedded within what he was telling her. John 4, verse 23, he says, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus here defines what a true worshiper looks like. Jesus here expresses that it's the one who worships God. How? What does he say here? In spirit and in truth. In spirit here has the idea of a a genuine, heartfelt. It's worship that, uh, again, is not external but internal. It's motivated by a desire to love and serve God. There's no ulterior motive or a harboring of a sinful lifestyle. Worship in spirit is a passion to know God and be satisfied in God. In fact, David expresses this in a very eloquent way in Psalm 27, verse 4, when he said, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That's a picture right there of worshiping in spirit. God wants our heart, right? Remember, God looks to and fro for those whose hearts are completely His. He wants our soul. He wants our very being. He wants us to be enthralled and captivated with Him, not for what we get from Him, but for who He is. We need to look to His face, not His hand. John Piper was quoted earlier this morning, and here's another thing that he said. Worship is not a means to an end. Worship is an end. Listen again to David's words. One thing I have asked. That shall I seek. What was that one thing David wanted? What does he say? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? Why do you want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life? Well, he says, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I just want to sit there and look at God. I just want to sit there in his presence. I want to know him. I want to be with him. This is the heart of authentic worship. It's worship that says, there's only one thing I want. There's only one thing I desire, and that is God. I want to adore Him. I want to sit before Him. I want to be in His presence. I want to gaze upon His glory and majesty. May that be the cry of our hearts, that we could echo that same prayer. I'd encourage you, put that verse up in your home so that you can be reminded that's the heart of a true worshiper right there. In John 4, Jesus said that authentic worshipers, true worshipers, are those who worship not only in spirit, but also, notice, in truth. That is the basis of our worship is on what is true. What is true about God, what is true about what He has said. Now some believe it's not so important what we pray or what we sing or what we do for God, just that we do it. But again, worship here is based upon What is true? Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. This is why we need to continually be 
in the Word of God. This is why we need to be memorizing it and reading it and meditating on it and studying it, listening to sermons, reading books about the Scriptures, doing Bible study. We, we can't be an authentic worshiper if we don't have a right understanding of the true God. That understanding is only found in His Word. So to pursue a life of authentic worship, we must first recognize that that true worship is in spirit and in truth. A second way to pursue true worship is found in another verse that I quoted from this morning earlier, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. If you could turn there with me. And I know these are familiar texts, but they are ones that are critical to our understanding of what authentic worship looks like. Romans 12, verse 1. Again, this comes in a response to all that he has talked about in chapters 1 to 11 and what God has done in the work of salvation. And here, based upon God's saving work, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may Prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, notice the sacrificial imagery here. Basic picture of true worship is what? What's the picture? Right? You've, I'm sure, heard this. Throwing ourselves up on the altar. What, what, is it, what does he mean by that? It's, authentic worship is, is this. It's giving of ourselves to be conformed to what God wants, not what I want. Daniel Block says in his book, For the Glory of God, a very interesting and helpful book on worship, he says this, True worship is essentially the human response to the divine creator and redeemer. For this reason, the goal of authentic worship is the glory of God rather than the pleasure of human beings. Though when we do worship the glory of God, we experience pleasure. Worship goes much Far, goes far beyond attending a particular function, attending a church service or a gathering. It goes way beyond a daily devotion. Authentic worship is the ongoing, complete giving of ourselves for God's pleasure and purposes. It's a life dedicated to holiness. It's a life dedicated to service. It's a life dedicated to sacrifice. Again, true worship is a way of life, not an event. Authentic worshipers will not fill their minds with impurity or gaze upon things which they should not be looking at that tempt them to sin. Authentic worshipers will work at their marriage, even if it's hard. And it is hard at times. Authentic worshipers will share the gospel and look for opportunities to exalt God in all of their relationships. Authentic worshipers will work hard at their jobs, giving God the glory. Authentic worshipers will obey their parents. You heard that one, right? Authentic worshipers will seek holiness and not pursue the things of the world. Authentic worshipers will not look for comfort and encouragement and refuge in things like drug, drugs and sex and, and alcohol and relationships, money or work. Those aren't means of escape for a true worshiper. True worshipers will readily forgive when wronged. They will avoid gossip think the best of others. They will look for ways to serve in the body of Christ and they will be resolved to be patient, compassionate, kind, even with difficult people. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Gee, Tim, I thought you were going to say something hard this morning. This is no problem. You know, it's simply this. An authentic worshiper will deny himself or herself, take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. Jesus didn't hide that fact from us, did he? He made it very clear. Look, you want to follow me? This is what it means. Be prepared to die. In short, a life of authentic worship is a life which asks in every moment, regardless of the cost, how can I glorify Christ right now? I remember the story of a believer in China. Uh, This was about 100 years ago. Uh, He lived and he had a great compassion for his countrymen, especially those who have been taken to work as slaves in the South African gold mines. And these slaves were kept in appalling living conditions. They were given little wages. They were isolated from the local population. And you know, this 
man, because of his compassion for them and his intense desire to share the gospel with them, he sold himself into slavery to be with those men. He only lived five years because of the harsh conditions. But at the time of his death, he had won over 200 men to the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is authentic worship. And you don't have to be a missionary in a distant land. You don't have to figure a way out to get into prison. But you know what? Our brother does show us here this, that a life of authentic worship is being committed to be a living sacrifice for God's glory and the honor of His Son, no matter what. And you know, God will give us the strength to do these things. This man did not come up with that motivation on his own, nor did he endure all that he endured in his own strength. He couldn't. We can't. Thankfully, God gives His Spirit to strengthen us to be able to be authentic worshipers. So if you find yourself caught in a place where you realize God is pricking your heart through this message, don't just say, well, I just got to do better. No, put yourself at His mercy. Confess where you're at right now. And just ask Him, Lord, help me. There's nothing I can do in and of myself. Only you can transform this heart. Only you can give me the strength to deal with what I'm going through. And I know some of you are going through some very hard things. Let's just remember this. Authentic worship is not an event. It's a way of life. Let's pray. Lord, this is a sobering, sobering message. The words you spoke through your prophet Isaiah are stinging, direct. And Lord, while we see your attitude towards hypocrisy at the same time we see your love and compassion and willingness to forgive Lord I confess Lord hypocritical attitudes and actions in my own life and I think I can speak for the rest of us here that we have all been hypocrites Lord some perhaps now even are in the midst of that, I pray, God, that you would move us towards authentic worship. Lord, and if there's any here who are not, um, or your children who have not confessed their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus, desire to turn from those sins and follow him, I pray, God, that you might open their eyes so that they would see they've been living a life of hypocritical, a hypocritical life. Lord, I pray for for us who who are your children, that you would, Lord, show areas in our lives that we need to address and that we would rely on you for that and look to you for that strength and insight. Use us in each other's lives, Lord, not to condemn one another, but to come alongside one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds so that in the end Jesus would be lifted up. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.